we have shipped a new feature since we last spoke, right? Indeed we have. <laughs> well, kind of. I say we. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's neither of us that shipped the feature. <laughs> um, so what we're talking about is the um, the feature that went live on the site, was it last week? I think it was, um, which is to explain our internal package score on the page that we currently have for package maintainers that shows you various little bits of metadata about your package. And it now includes a breakdown of how we are representing uh, packages with in, uh, with our internal score that goes towards the search result placement. So our search results are not entirely ordered by package score, but package score goes into the mix as well as relevance of the query, uh, of course. And um, the most significant part about this feature that's uh, that's gone live is that it was developed by Cindy Chin, who um, uh, did it as part of the this year's Swift mentorship uh, program. I think we've we've talked about the fact that Cindy was working on this on the podcast in previous episodes, uh, but uh, but it's nice to mention. Um, that it's now shipped. The mentorship program is finished for this year. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure working with Cindy, uh, just from start to finish, amazing attitude, incredible uh, coding skills, just just a great, a great uh, uh, experience start to finish. Um, and the nice thing about it is that this feature uh, is now shipped on the site and, um, uh, and, and is live for everyone to, uh, to look at. Um, and one thing, just to talk about the mentorship program for a second before we dig into the feature, which, which we do want to talk about, but to dig into the mentorship program for a second, it was really nice this year because in our, in our initial um, call that we had to kind of define the scope of what Cindy was going to tackle for this, uh, this project, um, she was very keen to tackle one feature end-to-end. -end. Uh, and so that meant, like, Obviously, we, we picked something together that was either it was actually ended up being from the current list of issues because this has been on our minds for a little while. Um, but we didn't, we hadn't really designed the feature. And so the mentorship program this year started with well, let's have a think about what this package score, how do we actually represent it? Where do we put this information? How do we um, uh, make people? Because Package score has been a little bit of a sensitive subject in the past, but there's been a few um, conversations around um, whether you know how whether you even should be ranking packages by some kind of internal score. Um, and so, when approaching the feature of exposing this data, we definitely talked quite a lot about how to um, how to make it obvious what was happening, but also. Um, being aware that some people might uh, actually disagree with the whole idea about package scores. Um, so we did some design, first of all, uh, and thought about how the feature would work. And then um, Cindy um, kind of went ahead and, and made several modifications. So not only exposing the package score, but also adding two uh, new factors to the package score. So two new uh, metrics that packages will be scored on or are currently now scored, scored on. Um, so adding two of those and then visualizing that package score on the maintainers page. Finally, obviously including testing and all the rest of it. Um, finally designing the front end side of it. So she wanted to do some HTML and CSS work. So that was representing the score on the page. And then finally, and I, 
I really do mean end to end when 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 I say it. Um, she wanted to write the blog post that uh, that launched the, the 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 feature. So that blog post went live last week, uh, written by Cindy, and the feature went live uh, as well. So it's been a, a an absolute pleasure uh, working with her this year, and um, and I think we've actually got a great feature out at the end of it. We absolutely did. And I'd add, finally, finally, she also got featured in one of the most popular, if not the most popular um, iOS uh, newsletters <laughs> last week, didn't it? So it was really... <laughs> How on earth did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> no, I, I, well, well deserved, because I think that's a, a great feature. And I think I, I really love the, yeah. the whole approach of wanting to do it end to end and you know doing it and yeah. in that time frame and you know not not as your main thing you know she's um she has other work to do right so this is a side project uh, so it's quite amazing really nice really well yeah done. she works um she works at mozilla um working on um on firefox i mean she has a full-time job um and so yeah this is 12 weeks of um of of you know, a, a couple of hours a week uh, to, to, to get this done, which is remarkable yeah. work. Really nice. I, I'd love to see that uh, come together and really just across the whole spectrum with everything. Really, really nice. Um, we And it, it's been well received. Um, I actually got some questions um, yesterday afternoon, I believe it was, about the feature, um, yeah. which which shows how, how interested people are in the score and, and wanting to know you know how it's computed now that they can see it they are you know next thing that's happening is well why why does this package have this score right and so this is this is what we expected yeah <laughs> um and i think these are fair questions yeah we mentioned this in the blog post actually but um this score has technically uh, <laughs> i'm gonna make i'm gonna lean on the word technically very heavily here it's technically always been open because the score has actually been isolated in one class in our code for, since the beginning. We launched day one, this score was there in some form. Um, and so technically that score has always been transparent. <laughs> um, it's just that it's unreasonable for us to expect people to go and look at the source code. Um, and, and that's what this really does. Uh, but, but I, but we knew that this, this issue would come up as soon as we ship it. It's kind of like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the demolition of Earth was was published ahead of time in on Alpha Centauri or somewhere. That's right. <laughs> People could have protested, but you know, just right. you didn't get around to it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's fair to ask these questions, and it's great to to have them. Just keep them coming. If there's anything um, you you um, want to ask us about, let us know. I, I love that I got this question ahead of time and that we can address it now rather than me typing some back and forth answers um this is much nicer to be to be sort of broadcasting it to to more people which probably you know some of you might have the same question so one question was obviously right and this is add an example for of one metric what's the rationale to give zero points for eight dependencies um so this package has eight dependencies and um in the listing it then has no points for the number of dependencies because the um you know i think five or less get some points and two or less or fewer rather um you get some more points and um you know that's obviously if you have eight dependencies uh you know you get no points if you had fewer you'd get some points and the question is well I can't really, I can't really shed the dependencies. Um, how did we arrive at those points? I should rather say and direct the questions towards you because I think 
Um, wait, I know that's that's uh, you came up with these figures. What was your rationale around those? Yes, I. All of the scoring has been. You, you can lay all the blame at my door here. <laughs> praise, praise. You can include me. The blame goes to Dave. Right. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, so yes. So before I answer this question, um, I would be much more comfortable with this metric if we were able to exclude test-only dependencies, but we cannot, yeah. and therefore we do the best with what we can, uh, what we have. Sorry. Um, I think it's valid. So generally, the way that I think about score is that it should be all positive things. There shouldn't be really, there should be no um, penalties uh, included in score. And in fact, the way that it works is that everything is just an addition to the score. It's just that it happens to be that the dependencies calculation is where it's less than something instead of greater than something. So it's kind of inverting the the positivity really. But <laughs> um, so generally it's always um, uh, adding on something for, for doing something that makes your package better. And, and that also is a very important part of this is what I always hope will happen with the score and we live in an imperfect world and so we can't be you know we can't be be absolutely uh, correct with this but what i i hope that if anyone tries to game their score and increase it artificially by looking at the uh, the rules and um uh, and and doing things to to kind of increase their score that actually that just makes a better package because that's ultimately what we're trying to do here is put higher quality and better maintained packages higher in the search results that is the intention of this score yeah. um so things like um having um many releases that's one of the factors that we the score packages on if a package has been around for a long time it's more likely to have more releases and therefore we give more points not based entirely on how many releases but there are some thresholds so i forget what the numbers are but if you go over two releases you get a couple of points and if you go over five releases you get some more if you go over 50 you get some more or something like that right so in terms of those in terms of those thresholds specifically for the dependencies like five and two did you look at the distribution or did you just sort of eyeball the numbers did you just come up with the number how did you come up with the numbers it, it's a mix right yeah so i certainly do look at the data when I'm coming up with these numbers. And and don't forget, a lot of these numbers were come up with three years ago. So mm. I, I I forget exactly how I came up with some of them. <laughs> um, but uh, but certainly one one approach that I definitely use is that, like, I, I don't even know whether those numbers I gave were correct, but I would imagine they would be something like that. Because what I tend to do is you'll get a few points for just kind of doing anything towards that metric a few more when you go over, you know, a medium amount. And then the more releases, like if you have a thousand releases, you're not going to get any more points than if you had 50 releases or something like that. Generally, it's diminishing returns as we go up. So certainly if you look at the, like the the metric that, that we give points for number of stars. So you only get zero additional points if you have less than 25 stars on a repository from 25 to 100 stars you get 10 points which is actually quite a large amount of points um 100 to 500 you get 20 500 to 5000 you get 30 
5,000 to 10,000, you get 35. And then if you have more than 10,000, you get 37. So you're getting two points for potentially 20,000 stars at the end there. Um, so certainly it's, it definitely takes into account diminishing returns. Generally, I like to also um, factor in how important the metric is in terms of how what the maximum score for it. So it's not like every metric has the same maximum score. They do have yeah. different maximum scores. And in the case of dependencies, which is what the original question was around, we're finally getting back to the original question. Um, the total number of points you can get for having a low number of dependencies is five compared to 10 for having 25 stars, which 25 stars is a relatively low number of stars. Um, so just to put that into context, and this was deliberately because this metric is, first of all, not ideal because it includes test-only dependencies. And secondly, it is, I certainly do think there is a case to be made that a package with a zero or very low number of dependencies is a mark of a package that I would want to um consider using so i think i think having that metric in there is valid but the fact that that metric isn't quite perfect in how we are able to calculate it right now is is why it has a lesser score and when we're able to do test only dependencies or exclude test only dependencies we may also increase the total um uh, the kind of the weighting of that score really. so there's a follow-up question but that's an interesting question would would you agree well actually before we move on to the follow-up would you agree with with my defense of that <laughs> yeah that yeah yeah definitely i mean plus i think people sort of focus on the score quite a bit i would say perhaps a bit too much because what you need to bear in mind, this is a tiebreaker in search results. If you search for something, you have a name match or, you know, the term, your your search terms are good. Right. Mm -hmm. Your readme has the terms, you'll show up in the list. And this is just, you know, give you a bit of a higher ranking in that list. It's, you know, we don't have recommendations or discovery or that sort of stuff where where that would otherwise appear and, and have, it, have an impact. So the best thing to actually do is have a package that has proper keywords and stuff and, and you know, a readme that explains what it is and then make sure that terms that people would search for to find it are referenced there in these in these places. And then you'll show up and we show 20 results on the first page. And, you know, with given the number of metrics we have in the score, Maybe in one of them, it won't be ideal, but you know, if it's a good package and has a lot of the other metrics right, uh, you know, having a few points fewer there isn't, isn't going to destroy your, <laughs> your discovery on that page, I think. Um, so I think that's something to bear in mind there. Cindy and I had an interesting conversation around um, one of the new metrics that Cindy added was, does the repository have a readme file? Because that certainly uh, is is a mark of a, 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 a you know a, a package which I would want to look at. If a package doesn't have a readme file, I think it should certainly uh, have less points than one that that does. And of course, most packages do. But the scoring on that check of does the package have a readme, not looking at the content of the readme, not trying to evaluate how how long the readme is or how much information there is in there, but which which we can and may also do in the future. 
but just does it have document uh, does it have a readme uh, we scored that at 15 points which is the exact same score as does the package have documentation um so uh, initially my gut feeling to when we were talking about ha- having it at 15 points was well documentation should be more important than a readme because clearly someone's put some time and effort into documenting their package but actually i think i feel really comfortable in the end with what we decided on uh, to have them at the same score because again the documentation we're not giving any kind of um measurement of documentation quality with this this is just a boolean does it have documentation does it have a readme and actually i think those the reason we actually decided on 15 points for both is that some people use their readme as documentation and so they are they are almost fulfilling the same thing now if you have both a readme and documentation then you're going to get double points which i think is also fair because it's it's more work that you've done towards creating a better package um but but that's why initially my feeling was to say the readme should be less points than documentation but the more we thought about it the less that made sense yeah yeah i think also the readme often fulfills the role of sort of a getting started page in the documentation sometimes it's even yeah you know it's it's a duplicate of that which is fine i think it's great to have it in both places but the readme sort of serves that purpose more of explaining what it is about and what the entry points are into the package whereas documentation often is at first especially at the first pass of a documentation is just api reference documentation which is useful but not great if you want to understand how to use a package how to get started with it you said we had a follow-up question we do yes and that's quite specific to that package but i think there's a couple in that area and the question is it's tough for a swift on server package to achieve this because Neo, uh, a very common foundational server-side Swift library, already has four dependencies. So by you know using Neo, which you almost certainly will be when you're writing or publishing a server-side Swift package, you you know you start off at a you already pass the two that gives you maximum points. You're very close to the five that you know gives you yeah. the next up, and you're almost out of um, out of the scoring range with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those are real dependencies, not test only dependencies. So they would not be fixed by if we yeah. at some point will detect test dependencies. So this this is a real a real problem. Yeah. Well, um, is it? I think that actually comes. Is it though? Because well, so I think that actually comes back to the same thing that I said earlier, which is the total number of points that you are gaining or losing in this case here is only five points. This is this is ranked. You know, it's a, it's a third of a readme file. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's also another reason why why this this isn't that important because these scores are relative. We're using them in ranking search results for a thing, and if you're searching for a server-side Swift package, sure, all these packages will have Neo as their dependencies, pretty much because it's such a foundational library. So I'm, I'm pretty sure if you made a survey across the Swift package index across server-side libraries, they they none of them will have points for dependencies because they're all up in the 510 range because yeah. they're very much you know if you if you use vapor as a dependencies you're done <laughs> you're, you're way past any of the limits there but that's true for all your in quotes competitive you know competitors in the package ranking space they all have you know neo or vapor or you know a package like that so you're still being compar- compared on equal terms and you know 
compared to an iOS package, yes, you'll have a lower score, but that doesn't really matter because someone shopping for a server-side library won't be looking at um, iOS yeah. libraries. Um, it's not gonna. It's not gonna go. Well, actually, the score of this is less, so I'm gonna use SwiftUI instead of server-side Swift. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're 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 looking for something different. Yeah, and this goes back to, you know, the the most important thing is going to be your search terms. Have something that is yeah sure to be referenced in your readme um, keywords and stuff. You know, if if it's an important thing that describes your package well, has very strong. Um, association with your package, put that in somewhere and you'll you'll land at the top or near the top, uh, certainly on the first page. And, and that's the most important thing, really. Yeah. Um, were there any more questions? No, that's, that's the two that I got. Um, we'll see if we have some follow-ups. Um. So the last thing that we should mention here is, because um, I, I don't think we actually said how to find this feature. Um, so the first thing you should do actually is read Cindy's blog post on the Swift Package Index blog, which you can get to just by hitting the blog link on the homepage of the Package Index. Um, and it does explain in that post how to find the feature, but I'll also just quickly say it here. So if you go to any package page, um, on the right-hand side, underneath the versions, uh, the current versions of the package, there's a little bit of small text that says, uh, are you the pack are you this package's maintainer or something like that? And there's a link there which goes through to a specific page for package maintainers, which has information like how you can add those badges to your README to, to uh, display your um, platform and Swift version compatibility, um, how to add documentation if you have documentation in your package. And then at the bottom of that page is now this new package score uh, page. So that's, that's where it is. Um, and the other thing that I want to mention is that we are absolutely not saying that this is a complete and uh, total representation of package score. In fact, I would describe this as the bare minimum of a package score. For example, we're not doing any analysis of how documented or how good a readme file is or, or anything more than the total number of dependencies or anything like that. All of these, uh, there's, there's a metric for does the package include tests? And the, the trigger for that metric is does the package include a test target, which is a fairly low bar for uh, passing that metric. So what we're saying here is that this is this is what we have currently, um, and we are actively um, uh, listening to ideas for amendments and additions to this. And in fact, at the bottom of that page, just underneath the package score, uh, there is a link to a always open discussion thread on our repository where this is already being discussed. Um, and so, just a. a, a a declaration that we don't we don't believe this is a completed package score feature. The um, this is always going to be a work in progress, uh, and that we are listening. If you have uh, ideas and opinions on um, new metrics, how we could make it better, exactly a living score, <laughs> and it always will be. Yeah, yeah. Do we have anything else, or should we do some packages? I think um, I think that's it in terms of news. We should uh, do some package recommendations. Uh, I can I can start us off this week um, with a uh, with a package called um, Direct JSON by Myrtle Kasanen, um, and this is a package that makes use of the Swift function Dynamic Member Lookup, um, and what it does is it allows you to um, access on, it extends string um, 
and if that string includes JSON uh, content, like if the if the contents of the string is is a JSON object, it allows you just to basically dot into the uh, the properties and navigate through uh, the JSON in that way. So, for example, the the one the, the example from the README here is uh, a string uh, called the cars of 2023, which uh, is a potential list of cars or something like that. It doesn't actually have the, the, the data in the README. Um, and so it says the cars of 2023.json, which looks to see if the property is JSON, like it is the string JSON, .ev.popular bracket zero dot brand. So you're effectively saying no, no codable, no JSON parsing, just access properties inside JSON as if they were um, already passed and uh then the dynamic member lookup will turn those method calls into lookups inside the json and and there we go return the values and nice i think this is an interesting package um but it's probably not one that i would suggest using in <laughs> we go <an> actual production <laughs> yeah this is my thing right here's a package don't use it <laughs> Well, let, let's see if you agree, right? Let me let me let me uh, let me say what I'm going to say about it, and then then again we'll see if you agree. Um, but I think, and the reason I wanted to highlight this package is not because it would go into a production application, but actually, if you want to write some Swift code and just very quickly look at the contents of some JSON, you actually end up having to do quite a bit of work with codable and yes you could decode it into a dictionary and do it that way and that's fine um but if you want it in in a typed uh way then you're going to you're going to be you're going to be doing quite a lot of typing to get that uh if you just want to very quickly just see what's there exper experiment with something before it goes in properly um and so i think that's where this package potentially lives is is for experimentation i think that the, the downside of this is potentially that if you did ship something with this and your JSON uh, ever changes, then then that's going to that's going to be harder to work with than it would be with uh, with something like Codable. It reminds me of Ruby actually because the first time I came across this kind of um, uh, approach was with Ruby, which has a uh, a method called method missing, which is the same as dynamic member, yeah. whatever it's called, dynamic member lookup, where it turns the method name into a parameter on method missing, and and it's, that's the first time I kind of came came across this uh, approach. Um, so, would would you agree? Would you agree with, with my my uh, uh, assessment of this package? Mostly, yes. Although the first thing I thought of is actually Ruby is a good point because I thought well, this is going to be nice for scripting right and and i've have been using swift more and more for scripting uh -huh. um and i do love codable there because it's very easy even to drill into uh structs because you don't need to spell them out completely right if you if you drill into a, a nested json all you need is the container types you don't need to spell out all the properties you're not interested in right so i don't i don't wouldn't necessarily agree that you have to do that much typing um, to unpack a JSON uh, into Codable. Sure. However, if you don't know what the structure is, or the structure is perhaps dynamic, then you know you're you're out of luck with Codable. You have to use JSON serialization, and I guess that's what this is using under the hood. And then this certainly is a much nicer API to 
to unpack something, you know, that is dynamic. And it certainly is, it doesn't need any typing, right? You don't need any struct or declaration to uh, decode. You can just drill in. And I think that's really nice yeah. for that kind of purpose. I actually came across a, a situation, it was with a, it was with codable on a YAML file rather than um, a JSON file. Mm. Uh, but uh, I had a situation this week where the same key in the YAML file could be either a string or an array mm. of strings. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to write a custom decoder for that, uh, which which first attempted to decode an array, and then if, if not, then it attempted to decode a uh, string. Yeah. Oh, on that note, one of the features I love most about recent uh, Xcodes, I think it might be 15, is that you can generate uh, a codable implementation because writing your own codable implementation always, I, ha I have like snippets lying around to, to look it up, or I used to, because now it's so much easier because you can just generate it and then modify it to, to do what you need it to do. That's such a, such a great feature. Hmm, that would have been useful. I, I didn't know about that. Where, where is that feature? Is it in Refactor? Yeah, it's, you know, in the, um, the, the, the stuff, the refactoring stuff, um, you can generate codable right. implementation. Learns, you learn something new every day is a school day. So there you go. My first pick is a really interesting package that I came across a couple of weeks ago, and it's called Swift Summarize by, uh, Steph or Steph Kors. Um, did you know about core services framework, uh, search kit, uh, and in, in particular in there, the SK summary, um, type only because I also read about this. Package. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea this existed. So what this does effectively, it gives you like a, a local version of one of the aspects of chat GPT. You can with this thing and with this package, give it a string. And then offline and on device have it summarize that uh, string you you um, you put in. I tried this with um, a couple of paragraphs from our blog post about the um, Apple announcement. Um, you know when we had our um, the sponsorship. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the result I got was. Uh, so these are like two, four, six very short paragraphs. Um, I don't know how many characters that is, but it's, you know, it's the, the meat of our blog post. And the summary is Apple support and the community support we already enjoy via our GitHub sponsorships have set us on a path where the Swift package index can be a project that fully supports our work financially. And I think we can just have much shorter blog posts in the future. <laughs> Because <laughs> this uh, this is the meat of it. <laughs> I did not realize that this was uh, in uh, it was a framework that you can use and that it's off on device. It runs offline, so that's that's a really interesting um, framework framework that I discovered via this package. And it's great to have this as a little Swift package. I could just stuck it in a in a playground, you know, without trying a playground feature. And that's a, was a great way to play around with this and and see how how it does. Yeah. So I also tried this actually, cause it was, I was going to, it was going to be one of my, uh, package recommendations today, but, um, uh, but it didn't eventually, it didn't make it into the, uh, into the final cut. Um, I did try this and, uh, you're right that having it not need a network connection, not need API calls that cost money is, is a huge advantage to it. 
but in the examples that I tried, because we've been doing some work with summarization of package uh, information uh, using ChatGPT, and so this is a subject that I've I've spent a bit of time looking at, and in the testing I did, it's impressive what it does, but it's it's not a patch on what you get out of GPT for the same input text. Right. Um, so it is good, and it's certainly. The, the the fact that it is an on device um uh, uh calculation uh, an on device summarization tool is is a a huge difference and so they shouldn't really be compared but we do live in a world where where chat gpt exists yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, another thing that i really liked i'm not sure if i mentioned that already is that the results seem to be stable so i've run this you know multiple times right and left some time in between in case there's some caching going on but you do apparently you, you are getting the same result back which is a nice feature actually because the way we've been which using is a it disadvantage of gpt yeah we the way we've been using that is sort of you know you run it again you get something different you sort of have to pick a result at some point <laughs> yeah um although i did uh i don't know whether you you uh listened to or, or watched the uh recent um keynote from uh, OpenAI. um but they're talking about now in the current latest version of the API, you can also specify a random, uh, a, a consistent random seed to get the same output from the same input again. Oh, okay. That's nice. I don't know whether that's shipped yet, but that was something they talked about. Right. So that was Swift summarized by uh, Steph Kors. So my next package is uh, Memberwise Init by Galen O'Hanlon. And this is a Swift 5.9 macro package for um, automatic Memberwise Init statements. So if you create a struct, you want to generate a Memberwise Init for it, um, rather than having to type out that or use any kind of automation to create it. I know there are lots of ways to automate the creation of these things. This takes it and puts it in a macro. So above your, for example, if you're um, doing it on a struct, if, if you, uh, if you above your struct, you add the attribute memberwise in it. Uh, and then in this case, the example is dot public and it will create you a public in it that takes every property and gives you a, um, an initializer that, that adds that. Um, and so, Nice little time saver is something that, that you end up doing quite a lot in, in Swift. Um, and, but again, I'm going to, I must stop recommending packages that I then recommend not using. <laughs> it is definitely becoming a habit of mine. Um, I certainly, this package made me think more about macros than, uh, than I have done in the past. And it's certainly a nice little time saver to not have to generate and not have to write a memberwise in it for your struct. Um, but at the same time, and this was always the problem with C macros is it hides what's happening. And so for some things where there's a lot of code that you might want to generate or something complex that you want to do, maybe that, although, I mean, do you want to hide complexity? I don't know. I think there's, I think there's a genuine question about macros that this made me think about, which is, are they actually a good idea? Um, and I'm not saying they're not a good idea before anyone, <laughs> before anyone thinks that's what I'm saying, but I certainly, it makes me think about like how much would I import a package that has a macro to generate a memberwise in it when the amount of typing in a memberwise in it is actually not 
that much really um yes it's repetitive and it's not something we really want to have to do um but at least once you've typed it it's there and you can see it and i know that xcode can expand the macro and show you the code that it generates and there are there are definite pros and cons to this whole approach but it did make me wonder of like where that line lies in terms of would i add a macro to do this job or that job or some other job um and I think this is an interesting package. I think I, I, I'm, I'm sure it will save some people some time, but I'm not sure that I would bring it in. Would you? I think I would. Uh, and here's why, because we have actually, we have this problem in a, in a couple of places. Um, Vapor uses, uh, Vapor models, uh, most of the properties are, or many of them are optional just due to the way it's often set up. Um, and you do need to specify initializers for all these. Um, mm -hmm. And they often default to nil then. And we had a couple of cases where we, and, and you can very easily generate the initial initializer, right? There's a, again, under the refactoring tools, you can right click yep. on your name. That one I do know about, yeah. <laughs> and then it generates that. And it does that, but it only does that the first time, right? The next time you add a, a new member or remove one, you have to remember to update. Um, your initializers and that is something that you can't forget if if you have a you know if you add an optional property then you know you don't need to initialize it and spell it out in that list and it, there can be drift in you know what members you have and which ones you actually initialize and i i guess the big advantage of something like this is that it would track um and always have a fully specified initializer yes. right there's no missing of of members and and making sure they're all assigned and the the way this bitters was um if i recall correctly we ended up you know saving stuff to the database it wasn't actually saved because we never updated the initializer where that field was passed through and actually written to the database which is you know you, that is not something you discover like weeks after it's just something you discover at an inopportune time like an hour later it's not it's not a huge problem but it's a bit of a nuisance and mm -hmm. and it's a lot of silly updating of initializers that isn't really interesting work right i, I love yeah taking stuff out of the picture that is just busy work and and there's nothing you're right hiding complexity is is a problem but i don't think this is complexity that is um bad like this is this is just noise really because everyone will understand what this initializer does um and why it's there you know sometimes you need it and you don't often don't even need it right if you are internal to a package you don't need to write the initializer so and it's still there right swift right. still generates that internal one that you never even see but you can initialize your type fully you know with all the properties mm -hmm. yeah why is that well it's because it's all internal and it's not exposed you don't see it but it's still there how is this different all it does it gives you a, a way of having that same automated way of generating it and you can make it public and then it works across module boundaries and that so in that sense i think it just you know elevates that to a different yeah. um access level and i think in that respect it's absolutely fine as a uh, complexity in, in fact i think the only complexity is that you need to import that as a package and and i know there've there's been a pitch to have something like that um, as a language extension. And I think, I'm, I don't recall where that discussion ended. I, I'm right. pretty sure it came up in the discussion where that should just be a macro. And I, I'm very sure that there will be a set of macros that eventually end up in either in the standard library or in a 
you know, Apple Foundation package or something where these things will become commonplace and are used just like any other annotation that we use right now, you know, like observable and and whatnot. And it'll be one of those where it, it offers that and we will f- use it and forget about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all very good points. Um, and, and I should just say as well that there are lots of options with this macro for you to customize various bits that you talked about there so you can you can specify that a property should be escaping or public or give it a different label or you know it and and combine those things you could have a customized label and the fact that it's public and things like that so um i should say that there's good support for creating uh the memberwise initializer that you would like to create rather than just yeah the same one for every uh type um so yeah, I, I think it's it's, uh, and that's the reason I didn't hesitate to talk about it here because we we call these we call these recommendations and they are of of sorts, but actually what they what they really are is as with any real world dependency situation where you're you're considering adding a dependency is it's actually it's a decision that comes down to trade offs in the real world, and so when we talk about them, we should talk about those trade offs too. Yeah, I mean I'm. Mine are recommendations. Yours are, yours are mentions. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how. That's that's not how I want them to be. I just think. Well, you, you got to try harder, Dave. You got to try harder. <laughs> yeah, I do. You're right. I do have to try harder. That's right. Because you you wait till you hear my last one. Oh god! Oh god! Here we go. All right. Well, I, I'm bracing myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me let me squeeze in a recommendation before we get to that one then. <laughs> and this next one is is called Typhoon by Nikita Vasilev. Um and that's a really nice retry library. Um and I came across this because I actually had need of, of something like this recently. I have my own version of it. Um, which is a little module that I'm using. And if I had discovered this before, I'm I might have actually jumped on it. It looks really nice. So what this does, it gives you uh, an API where you can pass in an async throws closure and it'll it'll retry it as the name of the package says or the description says. Um, not sure the name Typhoon, how that ties to retrying, but <laughs> that's what it's called. Um, <laughs> the nice thing is you can set retry policies. So there's a couple of things um, that are listed. I'm not sure how ex- extensive it is, but obviously you can specify the number of retries. Um, whether they are just you know on a on a constant time and it also supports exponential backup where subsequent retries will be at a at a longer period you know it'll do one second two second four second eight seconds and you typically do that to avoid hammering a service you know for instance if you're running on a network you don't want to you know constantly hammer the service at the same time um, I'm not sure if it has random jitter but uh, would be a nice extension if it doesn't. Looked really nice. Also something you can test in a playground to get a feel for it. Um, one really nice thing I found is it didn't actually work in our uh, trying a playground feature because it was referencing VisionOS in the platform's preamble and Arena, the underlying ah, tool, okay. didn't manage to pass the manifest. But by the time you listen to this, or actually already, it's it's fixed. So we have shipped an update. Yeah, I, I saw this uh, pull request go through. Yeah, I'm I'm so keen to try these packages that um, whenever they they don't work, I I get really annoyed and I need to fix it straight away if I can. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Typhoon, a retry package by Nikita Vasilev. So I, <laughs> I my third package is 
it, I, I love this package and I love what it says about the Swift package ecosystem, which is that we are, we have everything from something that will generate you a memberwise initializer for a structs, which would be valid in any Swift program that you could write pretty much. Um, two packages like this, uh, which is called uh, Swift ZPL uh, by, well, I don't think it's a, I don't, I don't think it's a name. I think it's an abbreviation that the abbreviation is SCCHN. But this package is um, a Zebra programming language um, uh, enhancement for, for Swift. So it, it allows you to write this Zebra programming language um, faster, easier, and safer is the description of it. Now, do you know what ZPL or or Zebra programming language is? I have no idea. I saw the package and I just briefly looked at it, but it didn't explain in the README, so I, I didn't have to, the time to drill in. But I just saw some further I, down I, I some barcode in. stuff. But, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> I, I, I drilled in. Um, and so Zebra programming language is uh, a command lang language used by a lot of printers. Um, and it is a oh, a way yeah. to tell printers what to do, right? <laughs> uh, and so this is a way that you can uh, write code to control a Zebra, a ZPL compatible printer. So you can say, change the alpha default font to, uh, to this and have it use 50 height. And then you can have a field right. and put some data in that field and you can define what to, what to tell these printers to do. And I think, I mean, obviously this is a extremely niche package. Uh, this is not going to be, uh, included in many people's projects because it does a very specific thing, but actually that's what I love about, about this package is that this is going to make somebody's day, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody is going to have this task. They're going to go, I wonder if package, uh, there's a package for it. They're going to search Swift package index and it's going to make somebody incredibly happy. It's only going to make five people happy in its entire life, but, <laughs> but they're going to be so happy. <laughs> um, and that's why I want to talk about it because I think a thriving and, and kind of, uh, comprehensive package ecosystem includes stuff like this that can take a ZPL compatible printer and generate a barcode in three lines of code. Yeah, I mean, you can see this be super useful if, if you have that sort of printer and need to output a barcode if or you a have QR that problem. code. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, this, is, this looks great. Yeah. There's even a Swift logo further down that they printed. Nice. This is a recommendation. <laughs> it's just a wow. recommendation for, for a small number of people. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and, and the Swift code is bang up to date. The ZBL, I would imagine, has been around for a very long time, but the Swift code, it uses um, uh, result builders to uh, to build up the syntax for the ZPL programming language. So you just, uh, you open up some some braces and you start putting commands in there just like you would with SwiftUI. Wow, that's amazing. So 37 episodes in and we have a recommendation. That is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I need to work harder, you're right. <laughs> My third pick is called um Obfuscate Macro and it's by our return guest PX9. I'm just double checking. No, there's still no <laughs> no further name. Uh, we had a package um recommended yeah. before or mentioned before i'm not sure whichever 
Yes, I, I, <laughs> I recommended one. I'm sure, I'm sure it was a recommendation. There we go. So this is a, obviously, as the name says, it's a macro package and it's a package to obfuscate strings in your binary. So um, you, you might know if you embed something in your um in your code, like a static string, you know, the, like a configuration variable that you don't ship from the server and you embed it in the library because it, for instance, never changes. But it's still something you don't want to leak. For instance, say you have, I don't know, some some key for for a, a symmetric signing or something or a, a passcode or something um, that can be found uh, and uh, printed, uh, I think strings is the command you would use typically to to see the text segments. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm throwing around words here. I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I've never tried it, but I know you can get at strings in a strings binary. Strings definitely does yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and so what this does, it it scrambles these, and you can just annotate your um, variable definition with a macro obfuscate. And or, or rather, not annotate it. You can use a macro command to um, to um, assign it to a variable, and then you can just let it do its thing. It picks um, a an algorithm, I think, by random. You can also specify um, a specific algorithm that, that you want to use, and there's a couple of or quite a handful of of options like bit shifting, base sixty four AES, um, that sort of thing, and then it it just generates some data um, and obviously also embeds the a way to reverse it back into the string when you run your binary and the result of that is there's no plain rendering of your string in the binary if someone looks they they won't see it that way they'd have to do um to do more to find out what's going on and and this is not my understanding is this isn't a foolproof way to actually make that operation safe it as the name says it obfuscates um the uh the string in your binary and makes it harder for someone to reverse engineer it. It's still possible, and but it probably right. puts you know puts up a high enough barrier to deter most folks from poking around and, and doing doing stuff with pulling out a an API key or something for a service that you don't want them to be messing with. Um, so yeah, there you go. Um, obfuscate macro by px9. Fantastic, um, and so I think that brings us to uh, a close again. Um, we will. We're actually going to be back in three weeks this time, and the next podcast will be the last one for uh, 2023. So, uh, one more before the end of the year. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, we'll be back in three weeks' time, and we will speak to you all then. All right. See you in three weeks. Bye bye. Bye bye.